Welcome to the Seven Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. All right, and welcome to another episode of the Seven Things EMS podcast. I'm your host, Dan Limmer. We have a episode I'm really looking forward to. We're going to talk about well-being. Well-being can be a little bit amorphous to us. Hey, we're tough, right? We can we can do this stuff. Uh, but the truth is, well-being can be more elusive than we would like to think or let us think. And to help us get through this today is James Boomhauer. James Boomhauer has been uh, nine years as a medic with Boston MedFlight, 20 years as a medic. And following his passion, he's taking a clinical psychology with a focus in military and emergency response professionals at Colorado State University, which makes him an ideal person to talk about this, not only his education, uh, but the passion. I'll also say, James, a part of our thing in this podcast is that we don't do a lot of fluff. But if I don't put in the fact that I was a paramedic with your father before you were born, (laughs) I think that it would just be remiss. I think we have to at least mention that hook before we get into these seven things. And welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. And if you didn't bring it up, I sure was gonna. So <laughs> yes, the the you can't see fortunately the gray in my beard, but it has been earned uh, over some time. And I think it's amazing uh, where you've taken this. And I'm really look forward to sharing these uh, these seven things. Um, and I think that uh, following our our plan here, let's get right into it. Um, at some point, here's number one. At some point, everyone in medicine struggles. It's perfectly normal. Now. I introduced these to you, and I have to tell you, one of the things that happened recently with DeMar Hamlin in the Buffalo Bills game uh, really gave uh, the concept of CPR and defibrillation uh, a big uh, push. But there's one other thing that moved me, and that those big, tough football players were standing there on the field crying. And I, that, that was the point to me. I get CPR and defibrillation, but here we are. And they weren't hiding their faces. They weren't doing it. They were trying to find comfort in each other. And I think that this goes very much into what you say at first. Yeah, it's, it's perfectly normal. I think everyone struggles. But in medicine, I think sometimes the deck is stacked against us, right from what we see to how we feel we can deal with it. So number one, it's yours. You, you took a big a big part of that right out of the mix. You're absolutely right. How how fortunate in such an odd way to have such a um, a visible and well known episode of cardiac arrest, where we not only saw the benefits of CPR and defibrillation, right, but we watched individuals look at a friend who just died, and how, like you said, the roughest, the toughest, the meanest, the baddest were consoling one another and were openly sobbing, and it started a wonderful discussion on vicarious trauma and people that watched the game from 10 states away said oh my god what do i how do i process what i just saw and it was an excellent jumping off point to normalize the fact that what we in healthcare see every day is a little bit twisted right and when we get either very clinical and talk about what the american psychiatric association views as something traumatic or if we get really pragmatic and just talk about it the stuff that we see 
is really abnormal and it's okay to be affected by that. One would argue it's not only normal, but it's expected. And if you start with the expectation of at some point I'm going to struggle, at some point something's going to bother me, it's much easier for you to be compassionate to yourself and to find the support and resources that you need instead of being on this proverbial hamster wheel of I must not be a good healthcare provider because I got a little teary-eyed during that cardiac arrest or I got a little emotional when that mother held their child for the last time or insert whatever traumatic event you want here, knowing at your first day in your program that you're going to struggle at some point is a tremendously helpful jumping off point to be able to receive that help. You know, one of the things you said, how do I process what I just saw? I think not only in your first point, but maybe going into the uh, second and subsequent points, your question, how do I process what I just saw? How many people don't even ask that question or feel the need? How many people just plod on and say, well, I'm supposed to take this, I'm going to do this, or I'm tough, and they don't even realize the amount of trauma, either individually or maybe even collectively, what we do has. People, I don't think they even ask that question of themselves sometimes. That's an excellent point. If if you're not even asking the question, right, you're certainly not going to be able to provide yourself any compassion or help find yourself the support at a peer or professional level. It's an important jumping off point of how am I supposed to feel? Is this comfortable? Is this good? Am I okay? How can I put that all together? And I truly think that starts by acknowledging, like I said a moment ago, that some of the stuff we see is really wacky. And some of the stuff we see is really abnormal. And a vast majority of the population, as evident by what we saw in that football game, has never seen CPR be performed, right? And for us in the, I'll say civil service as a whole, because just about every sector gets involved during CPR, that's a pretty vanilla experience for us, right? If you asked me to list out my top 10 worst, CPR might not even make the list. And I just want that to be a reminder of, giving yourself the space to acknowledge that that's strange and abnormal and can elicit some emotions so that you can make that step and walk towards and say, how do I get some support? I may be in need of support. What does this look like and how can I get it? All right. And I think this does take us into number two, treat finding a mental health provider no differently than a physical health provider, right? If we were to say, what do I want in my doctor? right? You know, we want a, a good thinker, someone that's not, I mean, tell me what, what you think on that. It's first people have to acknowledge that there may be times they have to talk to a professional. We've gotten to that point. We do little things in EMS. We support each other. Um, there's been a long history of, of debriefings and meetings and lots of other stuff. But the truth is most of the time we acknowledge that real help comes from a mental health provider. That's really the goal that we're looking for. So you're going to be one, right? You're in school for that. What are traits that you want to put forward and what are things that someone should look for um, to go for help and maybe make that step not so intimidating or scary? Absolutely. Um, you hit a lot of great points per usual. Um, 
there is a number of peer-led initiatives, right? We all have a colleague we can talk to at work. We all have friends, family. I understand sometimes communicating with family about the job is a little touch and go depending on your own relationships and how comfortable you are with having that dialogue. Um, peer support, critical incident stress, those are like peer-reviewed and and data-based interventions. They can be tremendously helpful. Don't sleep on those because they are very, very useful in guiding you to this process or preventing its necessity altogether. Um, step one with finding a mental health provider is looking before you need one. Um, the longer you wait and the more in crisis you have to be to find a mental health provider, the more at the will of whatever walks in the door you're at, right? If we wait until we're super sick to finally try to make an appointment with a primary care provider, we end up having to go to an emergency resource that we have no say over who that person is, what their background is, et cetera. And it really puts us a couple steps behind. So the first thing I'll say is just start looking before you need one. The mental health space is no different than the physical health space in terms of saturation and time. So it's pretty rare to find a counselor outside of the crisis world that will be able to have an intake session with you tomorrow. And I say that so you can start that search earlier. The rest of this is, is very marred and, and debate within the, the psychological profession and what's best for the first responder. Um, I'm going to tell you as a student in this field and as a practitioner, if I was to give you a checklist of what you're looking for, you want someone who is either trauma-focused in their therapy or trauma-informed. Those two terms delineate essentially the care that's provided doesn't necessarily explain what framework they're going to utilize, but it lets you know that they're comfortable hearing terrible stories. It tells you that they're no strangers to hearing dark, bleak, and gory tales and should be able to sit with you in those spaces. I would love to know if my mental health provider has worked with or has experience with post-traumatic stress disorder. With the huge asterisk being, you don't have to have PTSD to see a mental health provider, period, or to sit with one who has experience in it. What you want is someone who knows the steps necessary if, in your own professional and client-based interaction, they feel that you may be suffering from PTSD or CPSD, more complex post-traumatic stress disorder, when all of the stuff from the last 15 years kind of bubbles up in contrast to one big event is the delineation there between complex PTSD and PTSD. So knowing that my provider has resources there is helpful. EMDR or eye movement desensitization therapy is a nice to have, not a need to have, but those are my at least two big ones. I need a therapist that is trauma-centered or trauma-informed, one that has familiarity working with clients that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. If they do EMDR, that's great, but it's not a requirement. And if they're used to working with first responders, that's great, but also not a requirement. I'd love if my client has a ton of therapeutic alliance with other first responders, but I don't want to shoo people away from very good, very capable mental health providers who don't know the difference between a fire lieutenant and a battalion chief or an EMT or a paramedic. They can still provide very good care, and you might be able to help guide that little bit of cultural competence they need. So please don't pigeonhole yourself into only looking for 20-year paramedics who then go to grad school. 
I can absolutely help you find culturally competent therapists, but don't immediately exonate them from your list because there's plenty in the space that are becoming culturally competent or can still provide very good care. Just uh, go a little bit deeper into EMDR. Um, that is uh, something that's probably new to people, but is becoming very prominent in, in therapy. Let's just, a little primer on that I think might be helpful for those who are listening. Totally. So EMDR is a, a very abbreviated way to say eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, sparing you the physiology behind the thought process what we're trying to do with the MDR is we're taking something that is occupying a ton of space in our brain in a negative way. We think about, say, the bad car accident. And as soon as somebody mentions that call with the bad car accident, my heart rate comes up, my respiratory rate comes up, I start to tremble, I can smell the smoke from the accident. I'm very emotionally and like autonomic nervous system invested in this call my brain is struggling to differentiate whether we are talking about a call I used to go on or we are in the call right now. And while this is not only one of the markers of symptomology for post-traumatic stress disorder, what EMDR does is helps put that memory back into the DVD player, right? Or your streaming cue for lack of a better turn of phrase, so when you think about that after DMDR, you remember it, you acknowledge it, but it's a call you did 10 years ago. It's not this tremendously overwhelming experience that you suffered and can't get yourself out of it. So it really does help align the brain and say, that's not a trauma that's happening to you right now. You are safe. You are not in harm's way. That is a memory and it allows your brain to put it back in its memory queue, not in the haunt you and make you go right back to a really traumatic experience. Um, as someone who is starting early training on EMDR, the one big misnomer that I'd like to take a second and bring up is when you are in EMDR therapy, you are not going to be forced to relive this trauma brick by brick. There is this misconception that in order to appropriately do this therapy, you have to share the entire scenario from start to finish or your therapist can't help you. Um, bits and pieces of that trauma will come up, but the entire emotional retelling is not a component of that EMDR therapy. Uh, there are a number of ways to administer that therapy. Uh, there are some that are somatic tapping where we tap different areas of our body. There are some that we use a clicker similar to what you'd get in a hearing test, and you'd kind of click left versus right, and there are a number of different modalities that sit there, but that end goal being we take something that is tremendously tra traumatic and very stressful to you, and we remind your brain that that was a memory from the past, and take something that used to keep you up at night and really stress you out, and turn it into something that you vaguely remember, but can just as easily let it go, come back to it in another time. Wow. All right. That's really cool. It's that if you're, you're filing it, your DVDs are going to be in the right place in the rack now, not scatter all over the floor, like, or your brain, you're going to put things back in there. It's fascinating. Um, I'm going to go a little bit uh, rogue here. And you talked about uh, your heart racing and different things, you know, when you uh, read an EMS textbook, which I'm, you know, kind of partial to, I, we have a section on well-being of the EMT. 
I think it would be appropriate here to just take a second and talk about some of the the physical and other symptoms you might get from this stress. If you are not in a place of well-being, and I will acknowledge that there are a lot of different levels, right? That you know, from the from the bad call that you can easily resolve to, uh, I believe, it's a complex PTSD. Um, just tell us some signs and symptoms that you would want people to be aware of. Uh, to say, you know, let's have you reach out. You don't have to go through this. Absolutely. Um, the disordered sleep is a huge part of it. Um, what I'll say in the crisis world is we're very kind to whatever your experience is for the first three to five days. So you suffer some tremendous trauma, terrible call, worst call of your career. You, you go home, you shower, and you try to go to sleep and you can't. Right, your adrenaline is just coursing through your veins. You're wide awake. In the in the trauma and stress world, we expect that. We know there's going to be some ebb and flow for a couple days, and we'll work with you to normalize that. Right, we're not encouraging it, but we're saying that's perfectly normal. If two days after what you self-identify as a terrible, terrible call, you can't sleep for a full eight hours, and we'll talk more about rest and sleep and how that goes here in a few minutes. But we want you to know that that's normal. And we want you to know that a lot of the symptomology that I'm going to talk about here for the first 24 to 72 hours after a bad call is normal. And I only take the time to clarify that because I don't want anyone to be disheartened if they have a couple days of poor sleep or they're really stressed or they're really struggling and they go to a mental health provider and they're like ready for the PTSD diagnosis and they don't receive one. The PTSD diagnosis takes months of maladaptive behavior to meet the markers. So right now we are just talking about stress as a whole. And the easiest way to think about it is all things sympathetic nervous system. Okay, Dan's books explain this really well. We all know this really well in our clinical practice. Our heart rate is elevated. Our respiratory rate is elevated. Our mind is racing, right? We feel engaged, but we also feel really disoriented all at the same time. I keep it in line with your sympathetic nervous system because diet's really fascinating. Some people, when they're tremendously stressed, just unhinge their jaw and eat everything in sight. Some people, when they're tremendously stressed, eat nothing at all, actually feel nauseated by the idea of eating. Same thing with staying hydrated, right? Some people just jug all the water, and we'll talk about other fluids you can take that aren't as helpful here in a minute. Other people don't drink anything at all. So cognizance to your heart rate, your respiratory rate, your brain as a whole, can I hold on to a thought? Am I ruminating on a thought? Is my partner trying to talk to me and I just can't keep thinking about what that kid said to me before we took him to the hospital? Is the only thing you've talked about in the last 24 hours this terrible call and not your son's basketball game or not your favorite show or anything that separates you from your professional identity? Those really start to be the big three. Um, with the very important caveat of if at any point during any of this, you feel that an appropriate solution would be to harm or kill yourself or to harm or kill someone else, now is the time to incorporate 911 or 988, right? That is a completely different box of crisis mental health that isn't really what we're speaking about today, but is important to identify. Well, it may be understandable to have those thoughts. If you do, it's tremendously important to work that out with a mental or physical health professional and not sit with those thoughts by yourself. 
That was awesome. And we have foreshadowed three and four uh, in our conversation <laughs> yeah. so far. Number three, uh, one that uh, someone uh, out posting in an ambulance or on a very busy day or the EMS lifestyle doesn't seem to totally reconcile with, but hydration, nutrition, and sleep matter way more than you think. As Dan Preach. mentioned, <laughs> as Dan mentioned, I am a board certified flight paramedic, right? And allow the skies to open, right? And the halo to fall. And a younger me was sitting in a flight paramedic board certification review course, crash course. Here's what you need to succeed in this exam. And this gentleman at, at the time I was in my twenties. So as I'm much closer to the age I'm going to make fun of now, I'll do some with much more compassion. But this gentleman in his mid forties said, you know, flying in a helicopter is hard. And if you don't eat and you don't stay hydrated, it's going to be way harder. And my buddy and I, again, two 20-something whippersnappers, feet on the desk, right? The, the pinnacle of disrespect can Slamming be like, energy wow. drinks. Exactly right. Yeah, sipping our bang out of a twirly straw, right? We're like, what is, yeah, maybe for him, right? Not for me. We often think that they're the first three things we can get rid of, right? I don't need to stay hydrated, especially if I'm posting because I don't want to have to pee all the time. Nutrition is a joke right? I can have extra fries if I want to, and I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? Those are routinely the three things that we put in the forget it bucket. When I come to you on the crisis side of the coin, so we just talked about that, that um, um, fictional individual who had this really bad call, and they come to me on the peer support and critical incident side of the coin. I joke that I'm an IT specialist. Like, have we turned ourselves off and turned ourselves back on again? Are you hydrated? Have you eaten something and have you slept? Because as Dan knows, because he's very physiologically sound, and as some of your, your students and listeners may be putting together as they hear this, right, that is the parasympathetic counterpunch to the sympathetic surge that you have going on, right? Hostage negotiators use this. Good businessmen use this. When things get hostile, we surround around food. I can't stay in a sympathetic surge if I'm trying to digest food. I also give you the caveat that in crisis, your nutrition isn't as important as it is other times. So in crisis, the quantity of the calories matter more than their quality. So Reese's peanut butter cup or salad, have the peanut butter cup. This will all start to spool down the sympathetic surge that you're having. Staying hydrated helps keep our brain hydrated, helps allow that reprocessing that we just mentioned with EMDR to occur without the benefit of EMDR. And sleep is the mother of all cognitive reprocessing. That is when, for the tech savvy in the world, we allow our computer to defrag, right? We allow our computer to start to reprocess and put all of the different chunks of memory where it's supposed to go. The caveat here is, if you've acquired said sleep with a fifth of Jack Daniels, you're not going to get good REM sleep. So we ask you to hydrate with non-alcoholic, non-caffeinated beverages and encourage good sleep as a one-two punch to allow that reprocessing and de-stressing to occur. They are pinnacles of your care, not three things that we can let go by the wayside and should be 
the three things that you are consistently looking to reacquire after every call. Um, the EMS folks that get mad at me when I make fun of pizza parties, take the money you're going to spend on a pizza party and buy your employees a decent Yeti or Stanley or whatever. I'm not, you know, endorsed by anybody. Buy them like a decent reusable water bottle and give them a space, a bubbler, what have you, to refill that water bottle. If you want to give your employees something, a way for them to constantly stay appropriately hydrated is an easy first step. We won't talk a ton about nutrition on here, but be cognizant of what you're eating, right? If every meal you have comes out of a drive-through window, we'll have to make some adjustments relative to your individual habitus and eating style and everything else. And man, if it's less than six hours, it's not sleep. We pride ourselves on this. Dan has a picture of me somewhere from a straight 37 hour something out of Kenny Bunk Fire Rescue that he used for this you know, picture of exhaustion and EMS. You have to sleep. And if you cannot sleep, you need to rest. And the very interesting scientific side of the coin is forever we've preached six to eight hours of sleep is what it has to be. What we're now starting to realize is for the cognitive space, rest can be just as valuable. Dan and I will talk a little bit more about this in a second, but if you're doom scrolling Instagram and you're mad at everything and you're arguing with posts and this and that, what if we just switched gears? What if we just shut our phone off for 15, 20 minutes? We can't sleep. That's unrealistic. I'm at work, what have you. What if we just put our feet up and closed our eyes for five minutes? Did a really simple breathing exercise for 90 seconds. This idea of allowing ourselves to rest when we can't sleep shows the same cognitive reprocessing and cognitive benefit as sleep. So it's an excellent stopgap when everyone that's listening to your podcast is laughing hysterically because two very well-practiced individuals in the EMS space are talking about the importance of eight hours of sleep, which I myself haven't been able to obtain in a couple days. So I mitigate that with rest. And I think that we've really jumped to uh... Feet first into number four, if you can't sleep, rest. And then to to preface this, I'll say a couple things. I think there's a lot of people that are listening saying, yeah, right, I could really, you know, pull this off. And I think you appropriately said, um, you know, that you recognize there are challenges to this mandatory overtime being held over, you know, some of the craziness that we experience. And I'll also add that you're not talking about some type of cosmic Zen meditation, although I don't think we're that far off on the principles to shut things off a little bit, right? That, that you know, look at it as simply as taking a moment for yourself and that's going to start a good process. Dan and I spoke at the beginning of this of uh, some of the stuff that'll be in the show notes and, and things like that. Um, one of the things I'll put in there is a technique called box breathing. It is a simple cadence breathing exercise. You do everything to account count of four. You inhale, hold your breath, exhale, hold your breath. And you do that at least twice. I do it before I intubate. I do it before I perform thoracostomies. I do it when my darling significant other eye are mid-argument, right? And I'm trying to like spool myself down. I do it in traffic. It is an excellent way to remind your brain, I need to take 10 seconds away from whatever this is insert whatever it needs to be. And that allows me to either focus, double down and really focus on what that task is, or 
peel back and say, I need 30 seconds for myself. Dan's absolutely right. The idea of a, a two-week-long self-care EMS retreat is really not obtainable for a vast majority of us, myself included. So in the absence of these really big, deliberate acts of self-care, can I infuse little acts of self-care throughout my day and make that an infinitely more attainable thing, whether I'm flying to Maine on a helicopter, sitting in a 7-Eleven parking lot staging, or on my 18th fly car run with my fire department? They can all be obtained in all those spaces. I really, I think the other thing that I people will see is that if they consciously do this, they are exhibiting power over their emotions. They're taking control, even in a very small amount. And that's the start, uh, I think, of how good happens, you know, when it comes right down to it. Let's keep going into number five, because we're talking a lot about how to take care of ourselves. Um, some people, uh, maybe many people, um, have an employee assistance program. And uh, you say your EAP is not the enemy. And I think what some people have problems with is that it's provided by the employer, are they spies? Are they? Do they have an agenda? And that's usually not the case uh, for a mental health professional trying to do something for you. Man, my my stance on this has has waned over the years. And and Dan can smile and remember when I used to speak so ill of an employee assistance program. Um, I'm so I'm I'm going to talk very realistically about them. First and foremost, for many of us, they're the only resource. So let's not poo-poo the only resource we have. Secondly, it's on our leadership within our agencies to use them correctly and not just lob a 1-800 number at us when we're becoming, you know, a, a tyrannical employee and like really causing some problems. And what's very, very important for all of you to remember is as somebody who's worked with a number of counselors over the past handful of years, your counselor doesn't always know that they're your EAP counselor. The way that the patient comes to the counselor isn't always crystal clear. So this person that you have hatred for because they're an EAP counselor may just be Barb from the counseling group down the street who just knows that you're her two o'clock. She doesn't know that you're coming from the fire department. She doesn't know that you're an EAP referral. She doesn't know any of it. I remind you of that to give you some compassion to the woman or man that you're sitting across from. But to remind you that there are good resources there. Your employer can go far in asking your EAP questions. You can ask the same questions of your EAP counselors that I brought up in number two. Are they trauma-informed? Do they work with first responders? Do they have history of working with or specializing in PTSD? Getting that information can be so useful. It shows your employees that you cared enough to ask the question. It shows the counselors that somebody's watching, right? Hey, these guys take this really seriously. And it reinforces that at some point, everyone in medicine struggles, right? It allows that to be a natural part of the process. Utilizing that tool is helpful. The comma in your EAP is not the enemy is finding a good counselor is a lot like dating. And man, every one of my counseling professors hates when I use this metaphor, but it's true. If you're sitting across the chair from somebody and it just doesn't work, they don't get you, you don't get them, you've given it a session, maybe two, and it just doesn't jive, you find another counselor. It's actually easier to do within an employee assistance program than just outside of that network. You reach back out, you say, hey, 
Bob and I really didn't jive. I don't think our schedules work. Whatever you want to say, is there another counselor in the network that I can go to? And you have the freedom and flexibility to move. As far as what the EAP can tell your employer, the EAP can tell your employer whether or not you showed up. And that's literally it. There are some very small use cases where they can express some concern. I think if James goes back to work, he's going to be violent towards Dan. They have an ethical obligation to bring that up. However, they would tell you that they're bringing that up. That would not be done in a silo. So all you worked through that violence towards Dan some time ago. <laughs> Dan and I are virtual now. <laughs> there's a reason why there's a camera in between us. Um, there is, there's a lot to be said for utilizing the tools that you have at hand because mental health, as I said earlier, being no different than physical health, doesn't have an abundance of first responder counselors ready to answer 24-7. So I want to make sure you understand what EAP is. And I also want you to understand that you may find an amazing counselor that's affiliated with your EAP if you don't go look further in the basket because there's more than one counselor within that system. And that's something that I'm happy to expand upon. If anyone is interested or feeling particularly engaged by this comment, reach out to me because I will talk for hours about the pros and cons of the employee assistance program. But please give that clinician the space and the opportunity to be a good therapist for you instead of just assuming that it must be nonsense because it's from an EAP. I would think, though, that if you are at a spot after a couple appointments where you're not feeling it, it's possible the therapist recognizes that as well, right? That, that there isn't always a match and that, you know, both have to really uh, make this work. And a, and a professional therapist isn't going to take it personally, especially when people are lined up, you know, like, like uh, you know, people going to a Taylor Swift concert to get in. Um, you have to really, I'm showing how hip I am here. Do you notice that? Um, the... Uh, <laughs> Okay, it's not that, it is funny, but the therapist probably knows it too. It's not personal and they know that. Exactly. It, a good clinician, the only difference here with a clinician is the clinician has an obligation to be uh, as available to you as they can be. And I don't mean that at like two in the morning. I mean like in the session, it's their necessity to work well with you. So it is a bit unlikely for a therapist to say, hey, this isn't working and I'm going to let you go. Well, it does happen. Most therapists would say, hey, James down in Massachusetts specializes in first responders. Um, let's see if we can align a session with them, right? Let's see if we can merge you to another mental health professional, um, which is why I say I want you to have the freedom to do that. And Dan is absolutely right. Um, not only do they not take it personally, um, it doesn't matter. It's your mental health and it's your ability to heal. So while I'm being a bit unkind to my, my counseling colleagues, let them work that hurt out somewhere else. If they're super bummed that they couldn't help you, maybe they just identified a weakness in their care. And now they're going to double down and learn more about being culturally competent. Maybe you've done something very good for them by not placating them and saying, oh, yeah, no, this is great. I feel so much better, right? And saying, no, I, I really don't feel heard and I really don't feel that we're meeting the goals that I need to meet. So I would like to find someone who's better apt to do that for me. It can be very, very helpful for our parties involved. Yeah. Well, that leads us into really the last uh, couple. Number six is there may be more resources available to you than you know. 
What are they? I would love nothing more than to tell you that the team here at Stay Fit for Duty is the only and best mental health and suicide awareness advocacy platform in the world, right? We're it. We are the Amazon of all things mental health and wellness. And it's just not true. The longer I live in this space, the more people I network and collaborate with, there are more good people doing good work than you can shake a stick at. The problem is many of us have a budget of zero dollars. Many of us are very busy providing care. And many of us don't advertise, right? We don't have budgets to do so or the ability or the time to make it happen. So I encourage you to find resources and ask questions. There are peer support teams everywhere staffed with amazing people. There are crisis hotlines that are available 24-7-365. Up in New England, we have some fire and EMS-specific helplines that are available 24-7. And you always have one another. Sometimes sharing with your partner, hey, that call really sucked. And I'm like thinking about trying to talk to somebody might be the, oh, great, because I've seen a therapist for five years and they're accepting clients. Or why don't you go to this guy, James? He talks about this a lot on social media and maybe he can help you find a therapist. It's really helpful to just lift that rock up just a little bit and to see what's underneath it because there are a tremendous, tremendous amount of really good resources that many people, like I said, had no idea were right in their backyard. I think when you talk to someone and they say, you can talk to my therapist, and then all of a sudden you feel like you're hit over the head. You think the most together person uh, now realize that you realize they have a therapist. And even that makes you say, you know, it's okay to do that. I told you as we were uh, warming up in the green room, um, I found that a person that I knew that really seemed the least person to do it had been suffering some issues and got help. And it, it surprised me. I was not only surprised, but I was really moved by the way they shared it. Because not only did they share it, I think helped them, probably did it on purpose, that they had to talk about it, but it helped me to say, you know, everyone has uh, a little bit of this. And we're sometimes surprised really who's in therapy. And that's, it's good to know that others do it too. Absolutely. Um, if I could do anything over again, that's probably a list. But one of the things on the mental health side I do is when I started to see a therapist, sincerely, right? Not like a couple EAP sessions, but like really create an alliance with someone and really have a mental health advocate and a mental health partner for a number of years. I told all my colleagues at work that I had a doctor's appointment because I just wasn't ready to say I was seeing a therapist. What that did is that made a whole bunch of people very concerned for my physical health because James had a weekly doctor's appointment that he would fall off the grid on, you know, and it would never like talk about or anything like that. And while I, I don't ever want anyone to express anything that they feel would make them uncomfortable, when I started to say, yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm really sorry. I made everybody so nervous. Uh, when I said doctor, I just meant counselor. I, there's, a, there's a woman down in Walpole that I talk with um, initially at this stage of the game, weekly, right now, now monthly or quarterly. Um, and I'm like, I mean, Dan can see it on the camera, right? You're like curling into yourself and you're kind of talking to the floor as you're saying it. And the first thing somebody said was, where did you find them? And the second thing somebody said was, do you know if they're taking clients? 
because it was exactly what Dan said. It was a it was a colleague. It was somebody that you know I, I had some professional respect for. It was a great clinician that said. First of all, I'm elated that you don't have some really complex medical disorder because we've all been racking our brains trying to figure out what you're getting weekly doctor's appointments for. And second of all, thank you for normalizing it. Thank you for talking about how useful it can be and how can I find one too. So don't do it if it doesn't feel right. But there's tremendous value in being open about the fact that mental health care is a necessity. I bet it felt good for you to finally say that too. It did. You know, it, it, it felt, A, I, I hate to say I felt like I was lying to my colleagues, but it would be something simple, right? Like, hey, we're all going out to lunch. And I'd be like, ah, oh, ooh, I'll meet you guys up later because I have a doctor's appointment. And when I started to just say, ah, I'll meet my counselor. Um, it's a telehealth session, though, so I can meet you in an hour. The answer went, okay. Right? It was nothing changed. It was great. And I wasn't burdening my friends with, like, being concerned for my fictional physical ailments. Yeah. Yeah. That, that really is a great thing. I'm going to throw, I told you, I occasionally throw things out of the blue. I think to some extent, and we're going to get into number seven, but I want to ask you one thing first. I believe that there's a lot of people who believe that poor mental health, that psychological damage and EMS is inevitable. And you see that on social media, you know, that we certainly have a little bit of drama that goes with it on social media. And people say, you know, even in starting EMT class, you know, I can't wait to go out and be an EMT and be damaged, right? And it, it doesn't, it, I don't know. I think I've had my tough times and have talked to someone about it. But all in all, I feel, feel good in my experience. And while everyone is different, what would you say to the new person coming in? Is, is this inevitable or can we deal with it? Yes. I think the answer is both. I think it is uh, to steal a phrase from a uh, a psychologist that I study pretty closely. um, To think that you can walk through rain without getting wet is pretty ridiculous. So to think that you can walk through all of the trauma that we will see, the pain, the suffering, the angst, and not be affected by that is just as ridiculous. I think what changes is if I acknowledge that I'm affected by it and then work to care for myself after, the residue goes away, right? It's no different than spraining your ankle. Yeah, I talked weird. I I stepped weird. I twisted my ankle. I cared for my ankle. And now my ankle's good as new. So I think the reason I said yes is because, yes, I think some inevitable psychologic injury is inevitable. The long-term damage of that injury, I think, is very focused on how well we provide psychologic first aid to ourselves and one another and recognize the utility of good mental health care and good self-care in mitigating that long-term stress and dysfunction. You know, you should do this for a living. That was a good answer. <laughs> I, I totally threw that one out of the blue at you, and 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 you did well. I, I think that the, that the rain analogy was really good. And I think that things affect people differently. I've seen a lot of things. Hardest thing for me has always been seeing the pain of people left behind by something. By seeing people experiencing grief has always been my tough spot. And I think everybody's going to find, you know, other people can say, well, that's not it. I hate seeing kids or I hate, you know, whatever it is, there's going to be something. But okay, let's let's say that 
you can, uh, through that walking through rain, you can have an emotional umbrella by taking care of yourself and doing it right. How's that? I Absolutely. put something right on top of that for you. I love right, number it. Seven. That was beautiful. <laughs> let me, let me stick. Can I, I want to stick with number six for one second, just to bring up a really okay. important point. Psychology is a weird beast. And what triggers us changes all the time. Life status, rest, hydration. Do I have a kid? Do I not have a kid? All this stuff. So as we talk about all the reasons it's okay to not be okay, if you're listening to this podcast and you're saying, well, none of this really clicked with me because I'm just okay, that is also okay. We're not telling you you have to be triggered by any of this. We are allowing acceptance if you are. Everything is home. You exercise well. You rest. You do all this stuff. And you truly aren't affected by any of this. Gold star. Go check in on somebody that's not okay. The only caveat to that being make sure that you're actually okay and make sure that you don't just have such a wall up that you're overemphasizing this faux okay rather than being okay. All right. Wonderful uh, addition to that. Number seven, you can't, at least can't always, find self-care at Target. Um, Now, I'm not sure if you're looking just for the department store or the discount or just being out there in general. I know we talked about some of the toxicity of social media that's out there. Um, Let's finish strong with number seven. You can't always find self-care at Target. Much to the chagrin of of many in the ladies of uh, both our lives, everyone was really upset when I put that on here. Um, Self-care is an act that allows you to re-energize, recuperate, and rest. I add a layer to that that says it also helps separate your professional identity from your personal identity because you are more than a paramedic, a police officer, a firefighter, a military provider. You are also a whole and capable person outside of that. So what's the thing that you like to do? If that thing is meeting up with friends, going to the apartment store, having a good time, that's fantastic. If you're running to Target because that's where you're going to buy the thing that's magically going to fix you, you're doing it wrong. And that is where we take the time to say, ensure that self-care is the action and not the place. Far too many people overemphasize, I can't take care of myself until I go to Bass Pro or Target or this or that or the other thing. And while there's financial implications to all of that as well, it's important to say, hang on a second. Why are we going there? What's the purpose of going there? And I would argue that's identical to social media. Do I just want to look at rolls for five minutes to find a cute recipe or laugh at a cat video? Yes. If I find myself seven comments in with some politically misaffiliated, right, or or differently affiliated than myself, or some big social media FOMED post that I totally disagree with, and I'm on my 17th line of text in this furious ramble, I'm doing it wrong. So make sure that it's the action and not the place or the item that you're emphasizing your self-care on. I think uh, things that are easy and available and give us uh, instant gratification can be very misleading as far as uh, what we really need. And I think that that was a a wonderful uh, finish to this and uh, finishing. And now, I really feel we could go on and talk about this and maybe we should do a a version two of this, but I think uh, that we should uh, mention um, James' uh, website and some of the things he does 
we talk about going to the right place. We talk about looking for good sources. And I think uh, he's more than, than proved in this episode. His understanding and his passion for this is something I would certainly recommend. The website is stayfitforduty.org. And that's typed out, stay fit, the number four, the word duty.org. Uh, you can reach uh, James and his organization uh, through that website. And uh, it's something, like I said, uh, if you get the feel from this podcast that there's somebody who cares and makes a difference, uh, it gives me hope, uh, not only for this good voice that's out there, but for the future of the way we are going to take care of ourselves in EMS. The fact that you're a part of that does give me great hope. That's an honor, sir. I um, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, it has the additional benefit of being true. The uh, the episode will finish up with a ten question uh, multiple choice. Um, once completing that uh, quick quiz, you will be entitled to an hour of Con Ed. That certificate will be available to you to download right after you finish. Um, James, thank you for being here. It's been a very pleasurable time for me to have this conversation uh, and to talk to you uh, again and hear what you've been up to. Dan, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Everyone stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education Podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.